We are picking up in 1 John chapter 2, 29. 1 John chapter 2, verse 29. Um, I don't normally sit, for those of you who know me, I usually stand. But I think I... Uh, I think I need to sit on this one more ways than one. What'd you say? <laughs> I'm not that old yet. I pull other things. <laughs> hey, I'm just a child of God, Trev. <laughs> um, I tell you what, it's sweet to be with you guys. If you're wondering um, what happened to that ruggedly handsome guy and why is this buffoon up here? Just kidding. It's a joke. Rick. Wow. It's like deadpan. I thought that'd be funny. <laughs> Um, he's going to be back next Sunday. He's just out for the weekend um, spending some quality time with his fam. So your prayers for their safety is, are appreciated. I also want to say I had a really encouraging but interesting conversation with a sister after first service, and she put it this way. She said, Jake, I love chocolate. Love it. I've been walking with the Lord since I was 11, and she's, um, well, she's not 11. And she said, but today I felt like I was drowning in chocolate. And I went, I, I, I saw it coming around the corner, I'm like, okay. And I told her, I said, I really understand, I really truly do, and resonate with where you're coming from. Because when I first came to the bridge, I hadn't heard teaching like that, and for that long, ever. And it was kind of like, I, I can't keep up. There's gonna be a lot of scripture shared. And I have my points. And I have what the Lord's given me. But my encouragement to all of us is that you take, as it were, from a buffet line. He's presented this banquet of his word um, by his spirit for us to take part in, as Les said, a part at a time. So please, if there's something I'm saying and you're like, I can't get that. It's not about taking the notes. It's not about memorizing everything. It's not knowing all of the pastor's points. It has to do, everything has to do with receiving from the Heavenly Father today what he has for you. Amen. Same word, different applications to as many different people as there are in here. So don't be overwhelmed. Take what he has for you at the buffet, whether it be chocolate milk. Mm, I love chocolate milk. Or steak and potatoes. Amen. Amen. Or fried chicken. Yeah, oh, collard greens. Okay, I could go on, but I'm going to give away my identity a little bit. All that to say, let's all just take from the Lord what he has from us. I pray that this blesses you as it really has blessed me. Um, let me start with this. In 1984, Irish rock band U2 released, I believe if my memory serves me right, based on what I read online. Um, this was their first top 40 single, Pride. In the name of love. Remember that song? Some of you. The song ultimately found its inspiration, though, in Martin Luther King Jr. And so what I find ironic is that U2's song equates pride with love. And I find that ironic because even though Bono's inspiration was Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther King Jr.'s inspiration was, anyone? That's right, Jesus. He led, that, he was a, a major person in the civil rights movement, and he 
led by following Jesus and his teaching. And why I find this ironic is because the Bible does not equate pride and love. They're, they're opposed to each other. 1 Corinthians 13.4 describes what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Does not brag. It is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. That's a hard one for me. It's not easily provoked. It is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Really? Like, come on. Where's the justice, right? That's the age we live in. Justice. But we confuse justice with vengeance. And then lastly in verse 6, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Truth, as I have said, Les has said, Rick has said, shepherds, staff, anybody here, you may have heard more than once say, truth is not a fact and it is not a feeling. Truth is a person. Because 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. John's first letter to the church calls believers children. Actually, in his first letter, which was addressed to all the churches of the time, he calls them little children also. So if you're in here, a Bible scholar, you've got letters behind your name, or you know more than I do, okay. But we don't know more than God does. And the only way we're going to receive what he wants for us today is if we humble ourselves in a posture of humility. So my prayer has been that you all would hear from the Heavenly Father because you're hearing from him. I'll say this for second service. I didn't say it first. Sometimes, knowingly or unknowingly, we show up to God's food like a food critic. No, no, I don't like, oh, I don't like how that was presented, blah, 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 blah. But God doesn't call us to be a food critic. He calls us to be children who receive his food. His food is to do the will of his Father. So, if we're children of God, and God is love, and disciples are children of God, what does it mean to be a child of God? It sounds very simple at first. Some of you have been walking with the Lord for years, decades, but I would urge all of us, myself included, that we wouldn't quickly write it off and go, here's the right answer. This is, again, way bigger than a, a subject to study. To better understand this, though, what it means to be a child of God, I, I'd like us to get some context. But before we dive in to verse 29, I got some jokes for you. I'm not a funny man, but I'll try. Kids love jokes, right? Like you may have known this one. Knock, knock. Knock, knock. Knock, knock. Knock, knock. Orange. Orange, you glad I didn't say banana. Oh, I messed it up, see? Man, I'm bad at jokes. That's why I do other things that are funny. Rick's way better at this. But I open up with jokes because we're looking at what it means to be a child of God. So let your hair down and just enjoy what the Lord has for you. And he has some jokes for you. So 
I wrote these down, I won't mess them up. What do you get when you cross a nail with a porcupine, Jim? A slow poke. <laughs> wow, this is, this is quiet today. Either you guys are like dead or you think my jokes are really dumb. But I don't care because I'm a kid and I think these are great. So what do you call a line of rabbits jumping backwards? A receding hairline. That's right. My brother and I know. Okay. We're going to up it up a notch. Yeah. If you're American when you go into the bathroom and you're American when you come out, what are you in the bathroom? Yeah! European for all you Southerners. Okay. Now we're going to take it to the next, next notch, next level here, okay? Trying. In the spirit of my brother, bringing some cheesiness. There are three types of people in the world, Yogi Berra said. Those who can count and those who can't. <laughs> Thanks, Leslie. I'm not a math whiz, but I got that one. And lastly, what do you get when you combine a rhetorical question and a joke? Oh, that's good. You didn't answer because it's rhetorical. Anyway, that being said, I open up with some cheesy jokes because we're children. And the sooner we understand that and receive that identity, the sooner we're going to be able to hear from our Father. Here in verse 29, John writes, which is interesting, John, being himself a child of God, is likely in his 90s, if not late 80s. <laughs> he says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Let's get context on what it means to be a child of God. First, this word righteous. You read it in the Bible, you'll hear pastors talk about it, um, Christians might throw it around in Christian jargon, but what does the word mean? Righteous means to be holy, innocent. We confuse that with children, but all you who've had children know that there ain't nothing innocent about kids, right? Naivety and ignorance is not innocence. Holiness, perfection, righteousness, that's innocence. And it means to be right with God, who is righteous. And let me also qualify this. Outward practice of righteousness is evidence of righteousness within. But the key word is practice. It's not doing one thing. It's not having a noble, heroic act or doing something in the name of God once. It's a daily lifestyle. But we saw a lot of guys that Jesus interacted with during his ministry on earth who claimed to be very righteous, and Jesus straight up called them sons of the devil. And they knew by heart, or at least by mind, by rote, this Bible better than you and I do. They memorized large sections. And he called them sons of the devil. So what does it mean to be a child of God? First of all, and here's the first point, Righteous identity produces righteous living, not the other way around. You are what you eat. You do what you believe. 1 Peter 1.14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves. Also, in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
But again, righteousness cannot be a facade. Some of you can relate with me on that. There have been many times, more times than I'm even aware of, where I've tried to act righteous because it was the right thing. That's what Christians do. That's what you do in church, act righteous. But what does that even mean? And you can't keep the front up very long. As we see again with Jesus as the example, when he interacted with the self-righteous, false, pious Pharisees, their righteousness was revealed to be anything but because Jesus operated with the wisdom of God, which is from above. James 3, 13 through 18 tells us, his, his wisdom is first peaceful and gentle and reasonable. We don't see the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious elites act like that oftentimes. Some of them did. Some of them. Maybe the establishment was corrupt, but not all within the establishment are corrupted. And that's a lesson that this culture needs to learn. People are going to be imperfect. Righteousness isn't an act. It must be the overflow of who you are. Secondly, second thing I want to point out here is to be born of him. Some of your versions might say begotten. The word in the Greek is ganao or ganeo. And it is not the same word that describes Jesus as God's only begotten son. They're not the same. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And a lot of us have been or are currently confused or misled on what it means for Jesus to be begotten. And I bring up this because in order for us to understand what it means to be born of him, to be a child of God, we have to get to know the Son of God and what it meant for him to be begotten what it means for him to be begotten. I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus has a beginning. It doesn't mean that he's a created being or that he has a beginning. John 1.1, 1, 1, John, the, also the same author of this, tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father full of grace and truth. Hear that word again? Begotten. The only begotten from the Father. Jesus is the Word of God who later became human and is the only begotten. And that's the key. When you understand begotten, you got to understand singular, soul, only. That word is monogenes, which is not the same as born. Ganeo. Born in verse 29 means to be procreated, depending on the context, Right? My children exist as a result of my wife and I. But what we're talking about here is a supernatural, a spiritual reality, which is regenerated, which is also what the word ganeo means, based on the context. When we're born again, we are redeveloped spiritually when we receive Jesus. I'm taking time today to define things, because as you've just, if you've been here for any length of time, you just heard Rick talk about how our culture and those within the church who aren't really of the church are doing everything they can to confuse what the truth is, to confuse what things mean. So let me make this clear. When you come to Christ, he doesn't resuscitate your diseased, dying heart so that it lives longer. He takes the old heart and gives you a completely new one. To be redeveloped is to be reborn. It's a complete transformation. 
John 3, 3, Jesus answered Nicodemus, saying to him, truly, truly, amen, amen. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless you become a child of God, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. And sometimes that's hard for us to swallow because we think we know, right? By Christ's sacrificial death and resurrection, by his death, his burial, and his resurrection, we are given a new spirit. That is the gospel. If you ever wondered, what is the gospel? Death, burial, resurrection. That's what it is. Without that, you and I would still be living under the Mosaic law where our, our sins are atoned, covered. But that's not what Jesus did on the cross. And I want to make something really clear because I think a lot of us have been confused and some very godly, wise Bible teachers, I believe, have gotten this wrong. Again, because we, without even knowing it, like children, wander off from dad and start going, oh yeah, I got that from mom and dad, I know. So now I know everything. And then we forget to go, like, stay true to the essentials, the basics. Propitiation and atonement don't sound like the same word because they're not. Atonement means to cover. And when God gave Moses to Aaron, the high priest, and the priests of Israel, commands and, and, and guidelines and how to function and interact with them, atonement was a big part of that. But when they sacrificed a goat, a bull, whatever, that didn't pay for the sins of the people of Israel. But life had to be given. Life had to be poured out. Life is in the blood. Leviticus 18, 17. Someone correct me on that. I don't think I'm getting that right. But it's in Leviticus. Life is in the blood. You can be brain dead and your body's still alive. You cannot still be alive without blood in your body. And there had to be a consequence for Israel's sin. And it was a graphic reminder to them that they have sin. And there's a life being given up so that God can overlook but it was not dealt with. It was a foreshadow of who Jesus is and what he would do, which is what was accomplished on the cross. This is why we need to understand and teach our kids, and for those of us who are new in the faith, to take time to understand who God is through the whole counsel of God's word, Genesis to Revelation. Otherwise, you're gonna teach about a really good guy who did some really cool stuff and did some amazing things in the New Testament, but you'll have no anchor point as to why he did what he did and why he is who he is, and why he said what he said. Because the Old Testament gives the context to the new. He came to fulfill the law, not abolish it. But we can't know what law he's fulfilling if we didn't get to know the law in the first place. All of it is necessary. All this to say, based on Jesus' sacrifice, his death, his burial, his resurrection, for those of us who receive what he did accomplished on the cross, we trust in him, and what he did, we're given a new name. We're given a new identity, a new nature altogether. And this is the effect of propitiation. No longer atonement. Jesus gives us identity after his own likeness. Because remember, we're not born perfect. We like to think of babies being innocent. But again, all of us who've had kids know that is not true. They learn pretty quickly how to do things that are deceitful without even knowing what it is, let alone how to spell the word. And no one's taught them how to. How do they do that? Because we are in the likeness of Adam and Eve who sinned. 
We have the potential for being in God's image, but that image has been distorted, twisted, which is why we live in the world that we live in, because it's full of a bunch of rebellious little kids who don't know their father, doing all kinds of rebellious stuff. But when Jesus performed the work on the cross, there was an act of propitiation where the word says it means satisfied. He took on the wrath of God and satisfied God's wrath on himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him, that is God, made Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So again, we're still not righteous in and of ourselves. Our righteousness is through Jesus, who he is and what he's accomplished. And I want to make this clear too. It doesn't say that Jesus sinned on our behalf. It says that he became sin on our behalf. What does that mean? This is why it is important to know all of the scriptures, the Hebrew through the new, the older covenant and the newer covenant. Because if you get to know what God had laid out through Moses for his people Israel under the Mosaic Covenant, you would know that when a priest came to sacrifice an animal, especially like the red heifer, which was performed once a year, the high priest would take his hand and place it on the head of the animal. Now, the animal didn't sin. He didn't cause the animal to sin. The animal doesn't have the capacity to sin. But it was a physical outward demonstration of what God was doing, which is taking, as the high priest, he was the mediator. He was the go-between between Israel, between God's people, and himself, God. And the high priest symbolically would place his hand on the head of the animal, pray, and then they would sacrifice the animal, taking the sins of the people and putting it on the animal. That is, the animal wore the punishment for the sins of the people. But the blood of goats and rams and bulls cannot satisfy the wrath of God. Only a human can do that. Only a perfect human can do that. And so Jesus did not sin. He became sin for us. He took on our wrath, the wrath that we have earned by the wages of our sin, Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.32. Yeah, you can check that out. But all that to say... He became our sin. Why? Because apart from, from Jesus, we don't have life. And he did it so that we might become righteousness, the righteousness of God through him, the great exchange. He took on the satisfaction of God's wrath for our sin so that we could exchange, in exchange, take on his righteousness. And it was perfected and completed not only by his death and not only by his burial, but also by his resurrection. Otherwise, if he was still dead, this would not have happened. You'd need another sacrifice. But he came back to new, he came back to life, literally, to show us that anyone who believes in him will have new life. Behold, a new creature. And that's why there is no condemnation. There's no, what we would say, judgment on those who are in Jesus, who identify with him, who walk with him because they believe in him. They trust in his name, not, them, not themselves. He identified with our sinful flesh so we could receive identity in his righteousness. We just watched beautiful little Sophia get baptized. Jesus commanded all those who believe in him to be baptized. But why did Jesus get baptized? 
in Matthew 3 and Mark 3, no, Mark 1, it shows that Jesus was baptized and John the Baptist went, why? What, what's going on here? You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah, the Lamb of God. You should be baptizing me. But Jesus said, permit it so that we can fulfill all righteousness, which is tying into what I want to take us to. But before we get there, we have a choice. We have a choice given by God to be born twice or die once. Or born once and die twice. Hebrews 9.27 Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. If you reject God's gift of new life through Jesus, your body will die. All of our bodies, this is corruptible flesh. We cannot stand in the presence of the Holy One clothed in this skin. It won't work, which is why Moses could not look at God head on. It'll overwhelm him, consume him. We need to be new. We need to be completely made new. But if you reject that, your body will die, and following after, your spirit and your soul die also. I want you guys, if you would, turn with me to Revelation 20. I'm just going to read this, and then we'll move on. Revelation 20, starting at verse 11. John writes what he sees here. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds." And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades, Hades is, Hades is not hell, gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That's hell. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death, folks, which is why Jesus and him crucified is so central to our identity and our hope and our purpose and meaning in life. The third thing I want to point out here, first, first thing, to be righteous is to be holy, innocent, perfect, to be in right standing with God. The second thing I, I pointed out to be born of him. Righteousness, if you are born of God, you practice righteousness. And then thirdly, I want to ask a question. How can we know if we're born of God or not? And I think I kind of already just answered it. How do we know if we're born of God? 
How do I know if I'm born of God? And I pose it that way on purpose because I don't want us to get into the habit of trying to determine where everyone else is at. It's got to start here. How do I know if I'm born of God or not? This is a question that I wrestled with as I got into my teens because what does John say? Go back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he, that's God, is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Folks, I can't speak for you, tongue in cheek, but I can speak for me, and I've done a whole lot of unrighteous things in my life. And when I read, yeah, right? I know, so surprised. And so I remember reading this younger, when I was younger, just being so perplexed and worried. Am I not born of God? Why do I, why do I keep sinning if, if I'm born of him? Look over at 1 John chapter 2. Verse 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So this is not license to sin, but <laughs> it says here in 1 John 2, verse 4, the one who says I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth isn't in him. And it also says, let's see here, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So we all sin. But what John is talking about is practicing sin. That's the difference. I wish someone would have shown that to me years ago. Would have helped me a lot. I might still have all my hair. I don't know. I worried it out of its follicles. But how did Jesus live for the Father? That's the thing. How can we know if we're born of God or not? By what we practice. It's how we live. And we live what we value. We do what we believe. If I'm of God, then I will live for God in the way that Jesus lived for the Father. How did Jesus live for the Father? How did Jesus, being righteous, practice righteousness? Two ways I'm going to give you. And One's not more than the other. So just because I list one first doesn't mean it's superior to the second. They're actually, they're actually one and the same. First one is living by God's word. How do I practice righteousness? You live by God's word. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but fulfill. Do we practice what we confess? I'm a child of God. I'm a Christian. I believe in God. What does your life look like? Jesus' life evidenced what he said. As the Son of God, this is great. As the Son of God, Jesus is the example of what it looks like to be a child of God. Makes sense. Practicing righteousness by obeying God's word. This culture rails against obedience. And God's word, 
Well, we go through and we pick and choose. I don't think God said that. So you, you don't think God said this, but you think God said this because this is what feels good to you. Well, it's either all or nothing. I don't even get to live that way with my wife, right? Well, I love these parts about my wife, so I'll accept her this way, but I won't accept her that way. That don't work in marriage. Second thing, how did Jesus practice righteousness? Submitted to the Holy Spirit. He was submitted to the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16 explains that all Scripture is inspired. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. As children, we have to be submitted to correction. And the interesting thing is, Scripture is God-breathed. That's where we get the word inspired from. So true inspiration can really only come from God. If it's from something else, it's not inspiration. <laughs> we know from Genesis 2-7 that the breath of God is the Holy Spirit. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. 2 Peter 1.20 is explicitly clear that the Scriptures are not up to interpretation. Scripture is breathed by God, the Holy Spirit, and it's not up to interpretation. No prophecy or of Scripture is of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Had a sister come up to me also after first service asking me like, I've got I've got clients who come in and they go, they don't believe, they believe that this was written by a bunch of people, a bunch of men. How can I tell them that it's not? Well, I'll tell you what, this is the only book like it where the authors, I should say, the scribes, because there's one author, that's God. You look at things like the first five books of the Bible. You look at things describing Moses, who is a godly man, the most humble man, and look at the faults and the failures and the flaws that he demonstrated. Then David, a man after God's own heart, also lied, deceived, and murdered. If you're trying to get people to, <laughs> to think something great of you, you and, and trying to get people to follow you, you often don't give self-incriminating evidence. This, the Gospels, Peter, one of Jesus' 12, outright denies Jesus. This can't be made up by men. And then there's the whole issue of prophecy, like we're reading here in 2 Peter 1.20. There are over 300 prophetic promises, which is not a prediction. Uh, here's another point of contention I have. And I've made this mistake, but God doesn't predict. He already knows the future better than we can remember the past. So he's not predicting. A prediction is an educated guess. There's no guesswork with God. He, with precision, over 300 unique specific times, gave promises of who Jesus would be. 200, 400, 500, 600, 700, 800, 900, 1,000, 1,000 plus years before Jesus came. And they all had to come and line up in the right order at the right time. I mean, it's overwhelming statistically. This can be no, nothing else except the inspired word of God. 
That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So, to be a child of God is also not open to interpretation. To be a child of God does not mean everyone is. Otherwise, why did Jesus come? If we're all children of God, why did Jesus come and die? Because we're not. Because we're not. Originally, at first, if a child of God, your life will be a practice of righteousness. Obedient to God's word, submitted to the Spirit, to be born again is to be led by the Spirit. Romans 8, 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. If children born of the Spirit, then that means we are co-inheritors with Jesus in glory. That's amazing. That you would inherit and share in the glory of the infinite supreme God. I don't have words. But it also says if we're children born of the Spirit, then we're going to share with Jesus in suffering. I think this is an important thing for us to understand, especially as a church in America. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself testifies, witnesses with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Succinctly, no cross, no crown. We want, you know, we want dessert, but we don't want to eat the meal. I don't want my broccoli. There are going to be some hard things that we're going to have to go through. And it's going to be under the direct tutelage, leading, guiding, prompting of the Holy Spirit. Don't forget, the Spirit will lead us just as he led Jesus into hard times. Oftentimes, we start to question God. Why would you do this, God? If you're really here, then why do you let this happen? That, again, is a teaching for another time. But remember this, the Holy Spirit born Jesus into a poor family. He wasn't even born a king. He wasn't even born, you know, middle class. He was poor, from a poor family living in a podunk village, Luke 2, 24 tells us. They didn't even have a lamb to sacrifice to consecrate him as a firstborn son. They had to bring two turtle doves, two birds, cheap. The Holy Spirit also led Jesus into the desert to intentionally suffer privation of food and water. And not for a week, not for two weeks, for 40 days and 40 nights. Rick taught on this not long ago. After about day 35, because I've seen this online, there's some folks who are fasting and just drinking water, and they'll do it for one, two, three weeks, and they get mental clarity, they're healthier. I mean, it's incredible. The body does this like revamp on the inside. It's cool how God made our bodies. But that's like 21 days, maybe 30. At around day 35, your body starts to consume itself, eat, eat itself from the inside out. And remember, Jesus didn't go on a cleanse drinking only water. He had no food. He had no water in complete isolation in a very hostile desert. And then... The Spirit led him to have to confront the epitome of evil himself, Satan, at his physically weakest state. This is what it meant, what it looks like to be led by the Spirit of God. 
He's going to lead us into difficult times intentionally. And the Holy Spirit led Jesus, this is the greatest one, to suffer and then die on the cross. Hebrews 9.14. Jesus obeyed and fulfilled the word and was submitted to the Spirit, even to the point of death. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross and come after me. Because as children of God, we no longer live to please ourselves. We live to please our Father. Well, how did, that sounds abusive. How did the story end with Jesus? Resurrected, incorruptible, untouchable, and all dominion authority had been, he won that back? That's how we become co-heirs in submission and obedience to the Lord, practicing righteousness by the word and by the spirit. The Holy Spirit in me will produce evidence of himself out of me. Galatians 5, through 23 gives us the fruit of the spirit. These aren't things that I can generate. I can't do them. It has to be done in me and through me. Now, I have a choice still. So you don't get possessed by God. It's together. But I have a choice in submitting to him, just like Jesus had a choice in submitting to the Lord. James 2.26 makes it clear that we do what we believe. And so I want to ask us, ask yourself, as I'm asking myself, do I practice righteousness? And that's the second point here. The righteous live by the words submitted to the Spirit. Let our lives be instructed, taught, tutored, corrected, and guided by this prayer in Psalm 143, verse 10. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Can we pray this really quick? Would you pray this with me? I ask, Holy Father, that you would help us to not just read this, but again, apply this word to us, that we would walk this out in obedience. Teach us, Lord, to do your will, because you are our God. Let your good spirit lead us on level ground, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So with that, we go into chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. That word see is in plural form in the Greek. And it's in plural form because he's not going, Kevin, see. He's saying, bridge fellowship. He's saying, church all of you children of God, see, which is to say, look, consider, understand, live your life to know how great the Father's love has been bestowed, given, imparted to you. Do we know how great, how wide, how deep the Father's love is? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Not that Jesus liked the world. Not that God the Father considered the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Do you practically and personally know how much the Father loves you? Do you know? See, because, again, this has to go beyond study. 
intellectual rigor. Can you explain the Father's love to you to someone else? See, really and truly, have you experienced it? Now, our faith is not just based on our experience. Our experience is anchored in his word. But if all we do is read this and that's it, we don't know it then. Again, I bring us back. I remind us of the men that Jesus was opposed by who knew the word, and yet they didn't know the word. They knew what it said, but they hadn't experienced. They didn't apply it. They didn't live by it. The love of God is more than a subject of study. It is a relational experience. The word doesn't come alive in us until it is applied to us. Look at this phrase here. He says, how great a love. Podapen agape is the Greek. And it expresses something foreign, otherworldly, literally out of this world, this dimension, out of this universe, because this love is not natural. It's not love the way you and I would love each other. It's his love, the way he loves Jesus, the way he loves us. It's supernatural. This love is from heaven. It's not conjured up. It's not defined. It's not confined to our humanity. 1 John 4, 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Love is not God. God is love. Now, sounds like semantics, but there are a lot of people who are worshiping love. They're not worshiping God. Love everything. It's, it's love as I see fit instead of love for who he is. This is the love that Jesus prayed for us near the end of John 17. In verse 22, he prayed to the Father, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. How great is God's love? Jesus prays that God's love, that God, the Father, loves us as much as he loves his own son. Let that just sink in. I shared this first service. I remember my dad sharing with my brother and I how grateful he was and how his parents treated his wife, my mom. Like the moment they met her, they brought her in and adopted her before they were even married. They knew that my dad was going to marry her. But my dad would joke sometimes. He's like, yeah, sometimes I think my parents, your grandparents, love your mom more than they love their own son. That's how it ought to be. And you know what? That is a picture of what Jesus is praying right here. My mom didn't become my dad but they loved her with the same love they loved my dad. Everything he had, she had. Why? Because God says the two shall become one. And if the church is the bride of Christ, what does that mean for you and me? This is huge. To go back to what a sister said to me after first service, she's like, this is so big. She's like, it's like a diagram written all over the church walls, I can't bring it in. And I'm like, amen, me neither. It's going to take the rest of forever for me to know how high, how deep, how wide the love of God is. Amen. 
It's beautiful, yeah. So if you want to know how great is the Father's love for you, there's one definition. The love he has for the Son he, he has for disciples of Jesus, for Christians, for the church. And that's the next point here. Jesus is the understanding of God's love. To understand God's love for you, to see, I'm sorry, to understand God's love for you is to see and understand the Father's love for Jesus. This is why receiving Jesus is the only way. There is no other way to receive and know the love of God personally except through Jesus. He's it. So let's be clear again. My love for Cam and my love for my kids is unconditional. I love them the same. However, I'm not married to my kids. So we become children of God, but we do not become the Son of God, the only begotten. We are the bride of Christ, not to be confused with the groom. Let's just make that clear. We're not all Christ's. And that is, unfortunately, a deception that is continuing to creep into churches. There's one Christ, and we follow him. Romans 11.29 also tells us this love that the Father's bestowed on us is a permanent possession. So just as I said earlier, where we have heard it taught um, that atonement and propitiation are the same, they're not. The love that the Father has bestowed on us is not a privilege. I'm going to qualify this in a second. It is a right. It's a God-given right. Now, if you're thinking, all right, millennial, you all just think you're so entitled. Hang on. I'm going to explain myself here. Actually, God's Word's going to explain. But let's make this clear. Nothing can separate us from His love. How can you say that? Because God, the Father, did not separate the Son from His love. Yeah, but Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? Again, go listen to Rick's teaching. But I'll say this. If the Son and the Father were separated, then that means there's a division, a rift in the triune nature of God. What did Jesus just pray in John 17? That they may be one even as I, you and I are one. So is Jesus lying? If he's lying, then he's not God. And if God was divided, he's no longer God. So then why did Jesus pray that? It refers back to Psalm 22. It's a messianic promise, and everybody who heard it in the Jewish culture knew when Jesus said that on the cross, he's identifying as the Messiah. That aside, our, his love for us is understood through his love for Jesus. And his love for Jesus is eternal because he cannot deny himself. And so to those who receive his love, it's not a privilege. It is truly, literally a God-given right. John 1, 12. But as many as received him, that's Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God. He said it, not me. The right to become children of God. Even to those who work really hard. Even to those who go to church. Even to those who read the Bible. Even to those who worship. Nope. It says even to those who believe in his name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. Which means you and I can't make this. Nor of the will of man, but of God. But I also want to say we're not entitled to God's love. He didn't die for us because we were so worth it. He died for us because he's so worth it. Amen. We humbly receive this God-given right by faith. It's a gift 
that is irrevocable. It is a permanent possession. Ephesians 2.8 tells us it's by grace we have been saved through faith. What about Ephesians 2.9? We'll get there in a second. Look at the next part of verse 1. He says that we would be called children of God. That we would be called children of God. Called is kaleo. It means to be called out. And child here is technon, children, technon, to be born of. We're called out by God's love and we're born again by God's love. The point is, his love is the agent that gives us his new, our new identity. We aren't loved because we're God's children. We're God's children because we're loved. He loved us first. What I'm saying to some, are, you might be going, Okay, it's repetitive. I'm hearing the same thing. If you're just hearing the same thing, then you're not hearing it yet. Soak in what he is saying, not what I'm saying. We aren't loved because we're God's children. That would imply that we do something to earn his love. We are God's children because he loved us. That's the next point. We are made God's children by his love. His love does it. We need to understand and believe this every day, though. Otherwise, we end up falling into the same old trap that Christians do all the time I have. We end up trying to live righteously instead of letting his spirit produce righteousness out of us. Again, we do what we believe. And if we're trying on our own best efforts to act righteous, now we're believing in ourselves and not him. Belief begets behavior. What we do is evidence of what we believe. Ephesians 2.9 clearly states that this Grace, this gift of love, is not a result of works so that no one can boast. We don't deserve to be God's children any more than Israel deserved to be God's children. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, the Lord, God said through Moses, did not set his love on you, Israel, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So why did God love him? Why did he set his love on him? Because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers. Okay, but why did he swear the oath? Why did he choose to love? Because he is love. Why did he choose Israel? In his infinite wisdom. Some of you have been, um, have experienced the prodigal life where you have broken your hearts, your, your parents' hearts, grieved them deeply, and then you come back to, to them. You reconcile. And when you look back, you go, Mom, Dad, why? How could you keep on? Because I love you. God made us to express the glory of his love. Not that we deserve it, but again, because he deserves it. It is a gift that the Father bestows on us, and it is imparted to us of his own goodwill. His love makes you a child. That is your identity if you will believe in him. And he says, after that we would be called children of God, he says, and we are. And we are. Matter of fact, in 1 John 5.13, John gives us the reason for this letter to the church. He says, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence. Where does our confidence come from? Because we've believed in the name, that is the nature, the character of the Son of God, 
We can know that we have eternal life, and that gives us confidence, which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will hear us. Immediately, some of you will go, well, I've asked God for a lot of things, and I haven't gotten that. My students know where I'm going with this, right? You've heard that, this example from my life. I've shared it, I think, here. A friend of mine in a uh, football team, high school, Robert Swan. Um, poor guy. Um, he loved pot more than anything else. And I remember coming into seventh period physics, and I had a very cliche Christian shirt that said, that said Gap. God answers prayer. And he looks at my shirt, and he's like, huh. Really? He hasn't answered mine. I'm like, hasn't answered what? Oh, he's reading my shirt. Oh, he's, he's reading my shirt. Why do you think he has it? Well, let me ask you, Swan. What have you asked him for? Pot. Well, I wonder why he hasn't answered your prayer. What are we asking him for? We have confidence in the name of Jesus. We believe in the name. We obey his word. We submit to his spirit. Are you confident in Christ? Why do we struggle to have confidence in him? James 1, 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it'll be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." I have had times where my kids come up and they're not sure if I'm going to say yes to a request. And they do that. And they just kind of dance around it. And I'm like, just spit it out. Tell me, what are you asking for? But they're afraid of being rejected because they're having a struggle. Is this something that my dad will say yes to or is this just something that I want? Notice in James 1.5, in the beginning, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. It's not anything and everything. It's what the Father wants to give you. If you want the Father to say yes to your requests, get to know the character of your Father. I mean, I'm looking at a, an audience full of parents and grandparents and some kids who aren't parents yet. So this applies to all of us. I knew growing up the things I could ask my parents for and get a yes and the things I wasn't going to waste my breath on. Why? Because I know my parents and I know what they'll say yes to. Do we have that kind of relationship with our Father? Where we know his heart so well, we know that he, what he wants to give us, and we know what he won't give us. But do we also have enough trust in his good character that we can come boldly before the throne of grace and mercy and ask him, not sure if he'll say yes, but knowing that if he says no, we won't be condemned for it. There are many times that my kids have asked me, Dad, can I have this? Can we do this? And there have been times where I go, no. And then I explain. I don't go, that's ridiculous. I can't believe you asked me that. I don't condemn my kids for asking. And if I won't condemn my kids, and I'm full of faults and failures, how much more will the Father not condemn those who are his own? We've got to ask by faith. We've got to ask in accordance with his name. Get to know the Father's heart. And again, if you want to know it, watch his relationship. Read and know his relationship with the Son. Children ask, learn to ask for things that are in alignment with who their parents are. In Mark 6, 21 through 27, 
Herodias' daughter. Herodias told her daughter, go ask Herod for John the Baptist's head. And it was a very big request. But Herodias knew that Herod would grant her daughter that request because she knew who Herod was. In Mark 10, 35, two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, asked Jesus for the honor of being his right and left-hand guys. But why doesn't Jesus honor their request? Well, for one, they're not asking out of a desire to worship Jesus. They're asking out of a desire, really, to worship themselves. I want to be the closest guy to the limelight, right? You ever be that? Have you ever been that friend where you're like, hey, I'm friends with this guy. We're tight, yeah. Like, you're, you're, you're in the limelight by association. So he's not going to give them that. Um, and they're asking out of pride, and they don't know what they're asking, Jesus says. And he says, and it's not mine to give. you got to go ask the Father. In John 14, 13, Jesus says that whatever his disciples ask in his name, he'll do it in his name. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So there is the pretext. There is the goal, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And then he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Do we ask, do we know what to ask, and do we know how to ask the Father for things? We ask in alignment with who Jesus is, what Jesus desires, and what Jesus is all about. Let's finish this up. Look at the last part of verse 1. He goes, for this reason. Actually, let's start back at the top of verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and we are. For this reason, because of this, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Theologian Wiest points out that the word know means to acquire knowledge by experience. It's through the vessel, the vehicle of experience that we come to know. So, scholars learn ideas and concepts, but children gain knowledge by experience with their parents. As my brother has said, a lot more is caught than taught. Jeff Foxworthy, in a joke, was talking about how he can be hypocritical as a parent. One of his kids smacked one of his other, one of their siblings, and he went, hey, we don't hit. <laughs> the kid's like, I am so confused right now. See, because we come to know by experience, what we say must match what we do. Otherwise, we're going to confuse our kids. But in order to come into knowledge of the Father's love requires the humility of a child. We have to position ourselves as children. Children are dependent. Their value and identity is in who their parents are, which is why little kids on the playground will go, oh yeah, well, my dad can beat you up. Oh yeah, well, my dad can beat up your dad. And then it's, you know, the grandparents and like, now we're conjuring up dead people. It's just ridiculous. Why? Because the kids don't find their strength, their, their value and their identity in themselves. They find it in their parents. We would do well to live with that attitude. David didn't fight Goliath because he thought he had what it took. He fought Goliath because he knew God had what it took. We're not qualified by our intellect. We're approved as children. We're approved by his love. Now it says that the world does not know us because it did not know him. 
And I have experienced this now in my life. I've been perplexed. I've been offended, unfortunately. And I don't say that about these people. I say that about I shouldn't have been offended. But I've been hurt by other people's hostility towards me simply because of my belief in Jesus. But Jesus said in John 16, 1, these things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. Literally, kept from being offended. They'll make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. As they have done to Jesus, so they will do to you. So don't be offended. Don't take it personal as best as you can. They didn't know him, and that's why they don't know you if you're a child of God. Because the love of God has been bestowed on you. And this love, as I said, is out of this world. It is foreign. It's odd. It's even offensive to people who have yet to receive this identity in the Father. 1 John 2.15, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. It is from the world. Jesus isn't of this world. His culture, his system, his values are foreign because his culture, as we would put it, his system, his values are of the kingdom, which is why people of this world can't understand and comprehend. That's the last point here. To be known by God's name is to have no name in the world. You'll be ridiculed and despised, rejected. Why? Because that's exactly what they did to Jesus. So then the question is, it's like, so then how can we help others come to know the love of the Father? If they didn't know him and they won't know us because they didn't know him, how can, what's the hope? Where's the hope? John 12, 32. Jesus said, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Bring people to the cross. Show them why the cross is so significant. God's love was demonstrated by saving us from the wages of our sin and pouring out his wrath. And his son drank the cup of wrath down to the dregs on our behalf. Why would, why would anyone do that for vile, depraved criminals? And yet that is exactly what God did for us. Point people to the cross. It will offend some, but it will also attract others. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. The aroma of Christ to some, it's absurd. It's offensive to those who are dying spiritually. But to those who are being saved... Nothing sweeter. And John 13, 34. This is how we can help others come to know, by experience, witness the love of the Father. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. Do you know how far Jesus has come to love you? I've said this to my kids as we've taught them the Shema. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind. And when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He quoted that, and then he said, the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. But remember, Jesus is the explanation of the law. He fulfilled it in his life, in his person. And he says, a new commandment I give to you. And it doesn't nullify the old one, but it expounds and explains fully what the old commandment was in that our love for one another should be the kind of love that he has for each of us. That is a hard pill to swallow sometimes. And I'm not saying this with false humility. I know that sometimes it's hard for those of you who know me to love me. Because I'm not perfect and I make mistakes. And sometimes I just do things and I'm as stubborn as a goat. Bullheaded. But Jesus loved me to the point of dying on the cross. Jesus loved you to the point of dying on the cross. How could I not love you? How could I love you any less than that if that is what he says of you? John 17, 23, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Uh, worship team, if you want to come up. This is the supernatural love of the Father that has been bestowed upon us and given to those who receive his love by receiving the name of Jesus. That is to accept Jesus for who he is and what he's done. And then he gives us the spirit of his love. That's the Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit gives us the supernatural ability to unite together. People who would have been the worst enemies become the best of friends. And that is a love that the world can't comprehend. But there are people who are literally dying to taste that love. I heard it said to me one time when I was at Campus Crusade for Christ. We were going to a foreign country. And um, they said, you might be the closest thing they ever come to seeing Jesus. That hit me like a ton of bricks. Then it's like, oh, I, I got to watch my P's and Q's. No, no. You just got to walk in the Spirit. You've got to let Him guide you. That means there are going to be times where I know that God wants me to love another brother or sister that I'm not getting along with. And He says, Jake, how have I loved you? That love cannot be described in words. It can only be manifested by the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of those who believe in Jesus, in his name. Do you stand up with me? Prayer team, if you want to come forward. If you're hearing this and you're going, I've heard about it, but I've never personally received God's love, then today's the day for you. I would invite you to come. Not that we can save you, but we'd love to pray with you. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, Whatever you ask, you pray in my name, I'll grant to you. He wants nothing more than to love you, than to receive you as his child. If you're hearing this for the first time, you're like, I want that. Come forward. And if you're like me or many of us here who've been a child of God for a long time, but there's something that he's poked your heart with or he's placed someone else on your heart to pray for, then come pray with us. Let us pray with you where two or three are gathered. So you can pray to him on your own, but there's power in being together, sharing in fellowship in the Spirit.
Jesus loves that. The Father loves it when his kids come together and request things that please his heart. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for helping us, taking the time, being so long-suffering and patient and helping us, little children who are so naive and ignorant, you take time to show us your love. You teach us. You patiently wait for us to understand it. I thank you for your love, Father, and I pray that you would seal these things to us, that this would not be taken away or forgotten, that it wouldn't die, but that it would grow. I ask, Lord, that you would pour out your love on us, not as the world defines love, but as you are love, Jesus. We thank you for this word, and we bless your name for it. Amen. Amen.